We're here with um, Jeffrey Bale. He's uh, um, an excellent scholar on parapolitics and terrorism. His brilliant books, um, The Darkest Side of Politics, are available through Rutledge. A lot of this work on the years of lead and basically post-war Italy uh, was pioneered by uh, Professor Bale, who's now retired um, from the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. So, um, I mean, I could go on and on, but uh, thank you very much for joining this uh, humble podcast and, and uh, um, honoring us with your wisdom. <laughs> Don't lay it on too thick, Alexander, but no, I'm happy to be here. So, <laughs> Yeah, um, I think, you know, I, I actually kind of was introduced to the subject of, you know, Gladio and, you know, the strategy of tension and stuff like that. Um, I, I think probably about five or six years ago, you know, so I'm a relative newbie to the whole thing. Um, but one thing for sure is that when I first started to kind of get my feet wet in this historical terrain, um, a lot of the, the, the sources that I stumbled upon were just complete and utter trash. Um, and I think, yeah. that, you know, your dissertation, actually, I got it. This was before Rutledge published a lot of these essays. Um, and I got it from ILL, Interlibrary Loan. You know, they, they, they sent out a binder you know, oh. with this stuff. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so that was like my introduction to actually like work that was meticulous, well-sourced and made sense. So it's so important that, you know, they've actually published it in a, in a reasonable book form. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy it's finally gotten published. And I, I mean, it would have been published a lot earlier. Uh, I, you know, I, I was, my original plan with my dissertation was also to write a chapter on, on the Piazza Fontana bombing. But that is like one of the most uh, complex uh, cases uh, of all of the uh, uh, cases of terrorism uh, in post-war, really in the post-war world, actually. And, uh, and therefore, I, it's, it soon became obvious. And my dissertation, as it was, was over 600 pages. And if I would have written a chapter on the uh, Piazza Fontana bombing, then it would have been, you know, a thousand pages probably. So, yeah. So, I never was able to write that chapter. And, uh, and so for some years, I was thinking, well, maybe, um, you know, I would like to publish uh, all this material that I had uh, produced, but I was hoping I would have the time to, uh, to, to prepare like a, you know, a lengthy, a lengthy, very lengthy chapter on the Piazza Fontana bombing, but never quite happened for a variety of reasons. And then, and then later on, uh, uh, you know when uh, when the jihadists started uh, creating all kinds of uh, chaos and and uh, uh, then I got sidetracked onto that because uh, before I was studying uh, modern European history, my 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 specialized field was actually medieval Islamic history. <laughs> so so I so I actually uh, uh, one of the few people um, who uh, was familiar with all of the. Uh, uh, the doctrinal sources that the Islamists use, and therefore was able to understand all their arcane references and so forth and so on. So I felt that I had to uh, uh, try to uh, spend, I had to spend some years writing about that, uh, about Islamism and jihadism to try to explain um, the nature of that ideology uh, 
to uh, people who really had no clue about it. And most people still don't have any clue about it. So anyway, to make a long story short, I got diverted, you know, for about 20 years there. And then, um, and then finally, I decided as I was getting, uh, uh, getting to the point, uh, you know, my academic career was, was uh, closing out, I finally decided, you know, I've, I got to start publishing all this stuff about other other things that I'd written is, you know, a lot of valuable stuff I'd written over the years about subjects that I find more interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't find uh, religious fundamentalists particularly interesting from an ideological point of view. And so, you know, my, my preference would have been to study other types of extremists uh, for all those years, but, uh, you know, but this was, uh, you know, a more important thing to do. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, you know, I, uh, fortunately, I had a number of publishers who, who actually offered me the chance to publish uh, um, uh, my dissertation and lots and, and various other scholarly materials I'd written, including a lot of unpublished stuff. So I thought, and then Routledge, uh, you know, they, they had an editor there that was really interested. So I, I decided to go ahead and um, and do that, which I'm very happy I did. I'm, I, you know, I'm happy with Routledge and the way they they handled it, and I like the graphic design and all that sort of thing. And so. Um, and so now I'm just putting, I'm, I'm trying to put the Islamism and jihadism in the rearview mirror and, and move on to things that I find a lot more interesting, like, uh, like esoteric uh, uh, fascism and, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, left-hand path Satanism and you yeah. know, apocalyptic millenarian cults, you know, things like that. Those are things that I find very interesting. <laughs> so, and sure. uh, anyway, so that's where I'm at now. I'm, uh, you know, uh, now with uh, now with this catastrophe in Afghanistan, I, uh, you know, who knows? I might be dragged into uh, into uh, doing more analysis of uh, of, the, of the of the Islamist situation. But anyway, only if they pay me a decent amount of money, though. Otherwise, I'm sticking to to weird, obscure extremists that I'm that I find more interesting. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, that makes uh, a lot of sense, and uh, you know, good thing that's basically what we're here to talk about um right. so you know the first thing i wanted to ask you know i was already kind of i i was talking about how a lot of the sources on these sort of two decades in particular in the 60s and 70s uh are are trash you know they they bring in a lot of conspiracy theories and right. i think uh, you know they extrapolate a lot or they you know listen to the wrong sources and stuff like that um, or they just make a lot of conjecture. Um, so, you know, at the same time, it seems like the years of lead did involve a number of overlapping conspiracies, right? Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's uh, Plan Solo, Tora Tora, uh, Propaganda Due, the Windrose situation. So there's a lot of these things that tend to revolve around uh, gladio networks that interfere maybe with uh, empirical study um, in terms of conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean well, that'll, you know, maybe we could talk about it a little more broadly first, and that is the, to ask the question about why, when dealing with uh, real-world covert and clandestine politics, why is it that, uh, that bogus conspiracy theories tend to be much more commonplace than serious research into real world clandestine and covert politics. That's, that's the first question I think maybe we should talk about. And I think you asked me in a preliminary question, how do I uh, 
uh, deal with uh, how do I study these kinds of subjects without getting sucked down the conspiracy theory uh, rabbit holes, right? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and the answer is really that, I mean, here's what the fundamental problem is. The fundamental problem is that most people who are interested in some in these kinds of uh, arcane subjects don't have any kind of specialized training um, that enables them to distinguish between reliable and unreliable sources. That's that's first of all. And I'm, I'm I'm thinking specifically, you know, I'm a historian, and so it used to be before history was the, the discipline of history was so corrupted that that historians had to have uh, advanced training and and what they call source criticism, whereby you do internal and external source criticism with respect to various sources to evaluate the reliability. And then you tri triangulate information from different sources and then uh, to try to synthesize the information and then reconstruct what happened. Uh, so very few people have that kind of training um, anymore. And that's a, that's a real problem. Um, and then of course, the other problem is that, um, you know, in a way, in order to understand complex Clandestine and covert activities. You have to have a lot of you have to have a lot of previous knowledge about various things. You have to have a lot of knowledge about history. You have to have a lot of knowledge about the the national context, the, about uh, the culture of various regions. Uh, um, in other words, you have to have a fairly large storehouse of knowledge already accumulated before you can really delve into something uh, things that are that are that are that are that people are intentionally trying to keep secret, essentially, is what we're talking about here. You know? right. um, and so that's, uh, and then the, the third thing is, that is, and this is something that's very important, and I, I think that people really need to, uh, um, you know, uh, it's something that I think people really need to, 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 to pay close attention to, is if you're trying to understand any kind of phenomenon, any kind of historical or political phenomenon, you have to examine, you know, a vast array of sources you know, you have to exa examine the corpus of available information very comprehensively. So you've got to examine sources on all sides of the political spectrum, and you've got to be doing it, and you've got to do it fairly and as and as uh, objectively uh, as, as possible. One of the problems you one has when you're dealing with so much of the uh, uh, of analysis of politics in general, not only of conspiratorial politics, is that people have a very uh, explicit ideological agendas that they're pushing. And when you have explicit ideological agendas you're pushing, then you, you tend to cherry pick sources and just pick information that supports your preconceived beliefs and conveniently ignore information that undermines your preconceived beliefs. And you know that's why the results are gonna be corrupted and biased. And so you really have to have an open mind as much as you possibly can when you're trying to understand any kind of real, any kind of phenomenon in the real world, because everything in the real world is inordinately complicated. You know, I always used to joke to my students, if you think anything is simple, uh, then you don't know much, you don't know much, because the more you delve into any particular topic, the more complicated it gets. Uh, you know, the more layers you, you peel off, uh, the, the more complex everything becomes. Um, and, the, you know, the, the more questions you can answer, the more questions arise that you need to be answered. So, so that's the thing about pursuing knowledge, you know, there's never an end to the process. You know, once you begin, it just it's, and that's what makes it exciting. You know, you, you you can never reach a point where you say, "Well, I understand everything perfectly now." I, <laughs> you know, and then you never get to that point. So you you know, there's always more sources of information that become available. There's always more nuances that, you, that become uh, that become clear as you go as you proceed. And, and so uh, the the biggest 
uh, obstacle to people understanding reality is having a preconceived notion of what what they're going to find, and then just uh, following uh, you know the, the, that 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 uh, track and ignoring all the all the parallel and alternative tracks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, uh, it's also you know a little bit difficult you know when you're looking at some of the historical studies because as you said like people are trying to keep a lot of this stuff secret so sure you know, how do you peel back the um the curtain i guess a little bit and, and see what's taking place right um but you i mean you were talking about stuff like the left hand path and uh some of that esoteric fascism i wanted to kind of touch on that speaking of occult ideology um a lot of you know uh the fascist movement during this time period uh revolved around the occult and especially this guy you know Giulio Vola um so I was wondering if you can kind of describe their ideology this kind of idea this national revolutionary ideology its relationship with fascism you know, maybe like, you know, the Italian Social Republic. Um, and it's Okay, you know, all right. Well, this is all very complicated. And, 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 you know, I mean, really, we could spend the next uh, however long this interview takes just talking about this particular subject. But let, let me just, uh, you know, start really at the beginning uh, here. I mean, at least in a, in a you know, very summary fashion. When you're talking about fascism, what you're really talking about is an attempt to conjoin ideologies from both the left and the right. This is something that a lot of people don't seem to understand, especially the dogmatic left doesn't understand. I mean, fascism is a unique ideology precisely because it, it tries to uh, uh, synthesize uh, in particular ideas from the, from the right and the left. And, and more specifically, if, you know, here I'm really echoing Sternhill because I think Sternhill is the person who, who, who has correctly understood what fascism is. I mean, if you're talking about different theories of fascism, you know, the, there's kind of like the dominant theory or the, the most common theory that, that's associated now with Roger Griffin, where it talks about it as a form of palingenetic nationalism and all that sort of thing. And, and as I always joke with Roger, because we were, we're pretty close colleagues, actually, and we have regular email contact, I, I always joke with him, like, he's got it half right. That's, that's half of what fascism is. The other half is, is a kind of non-Marxist socialism. And so if you go back to the early, uh, the earliest intellectual circles from which uh, the fascist ideology emerged, I mean, you know, that's what you find. You find, you find a conjunction of, uh, of illiberal nationalism and then uh, with the kind of non-Marxist socialism. And it's not really surprising since a lot of the people who were amongst the early fascists were, had formerly been socialists themselves or, or revolutionary syndicalists. And then you had people on the right who, were, who became interested in the social question. So... So fascism really is, is that, kind of a, uh, that kind of an ideology. So the point is that, that, that because fascist ideology combines elements from the left and right, what that means is that in every fascist movement, there's a left wing and a right wing. In other words, those elements that are primarily attracted to the right wing elements are primarily attracted to the left wing elements. And so every fascist movement is internally divided uh, into, 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 into factions. And, and then uh, the, those factions struggle amongst themselves uh, for for dominance uh, and without in the absence of a kind of charismatic uh, a leader, um, you know, uh, you, generally speaking, those those kind of internal struggles can continue on and just 
and just to dissipate the entire movement. Uh, but if you have a particular leader who can who can uh, uh, can uh, can really mobilize the majority of people in in support of one particular interpretation, then you can have you know the development of a, of a successful movement and maybe even possibly develop uh, a mass movement. Uh, but I think the reason why it's important to talk about this is because uh, there's always left and right wing currents within fascist movements, and they never really disappeared. So when you're talking about the uh, the uh, Interwar fascism. I mean, the 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 attempts by by fascists to move to the left to attract more support from the left from the from the socialist and communist milieus, uh, which occurred both in Italy with the early early fascist program and uh, early the earliest phases of the fascist movement under Mussolini, and also even in the Nazi movement when the uh, when Hitler was was imprisoned after the Beer Hall Putsch, the left elements within the Nazi movement became more more uh, influential for a brief period. And they began, They were trying to move uh, the Nazi uh, movement to the left. Now, also, let me just make an obvious point that Nazism is an atypical variant of fascism because of, the, because of Hitler's obsession with, with biological racism and eugenics and things like that. So Nazism is not a typical variant of fascism, but it's actually an atypical variant of fascism. Anyway, getting back to the point, uh, the point is that, that in the 30s, and the, given this, given the, the the, the 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 political constellation in most European countries it was very difficult for fascist movements to move to the left and attract a lot of support from the left because the left side was already occupied by socialist parties and communist parties so they ended up having they ended up moving to the right that that strengthened the hand of the right wing factions within the fascist movement in other countries like in Argentina though for, you, for example with the Peronist movement it was the right side of the political spectrum that was blocked up and therefore the fascist movements moved to the left and became anchored in the labor movement and so forth. So it, it, that the point is that there's a lot of variability and a lot of potential uh, 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 for, for diverse kinds of developments when you're talking about fascism. Okay, let's now get beyond uh, that to, to talking about the question you're, you're asking. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the fascist movement in Italy after World War II. And really there's, there's, there's three main currents within the, the, the Italian fascist movement. Uh, there's a, a right wing, a left wing, and then there's the kind of um, the bourgeois center. So the right wing of the fascist milieu in Italy after World War II was, was made up of the neo-Nazis and the, and the Avalans. Avala uh, is certainly, Avala is not really a fascist. Avala is, a, you know, what we, what we would refer to as a as an esoteric aristocratic traditionalist. That's that's his particular ideology, like like Rene Guénon and all these kind of people. So, um, but for some strange reason, the elements. Uh, I mean, and of course, if you even if you look at Avila's writings during the during the uh, uh, the Nazi or the fascist era, I mean, he was actually critical of, of, of the Nazi movement and critical of the fascist movement because he for for, for being too plebeian and too proletarian. Too proletarian. He, he was critical of the leftist elements within the fascist and Nazi movements. He, he didn't think they were he, what he wanted to create was a kind of aristocratic cadre that was like seeking higher levels of knowledge, uh, you know, and so forth and so on, a kind of Gnostic, a Gnostic sort of thing. And of course, he had the psychical notion of uh, of history, you know, that there's eras and and and, and so forth and so on. Anyway, the point is that that Abel is not really a fascist, and one of the peculiar uh, aspects of the of the neo-fascist milieu in Italy is that is precisely that the right-wing elements within the within the the fascist movement, which are essentially the elements that were otherwise more influenced by the Nazi uh, uh, Nazis and so forth and so on, embraced Avila, 
and they, they sort of combined a kind of uh, elements of Nazism with, uh, with this kind of idea of creating an, an holistic, a cadre, an aristocratic elite cadre uh, to govern, you know, to, to take power and, and govern society. So when you're talking about the right wing of the, of the fascist movement in Italy, you're really talking about groups like, like uh, Ordine Nuovo and uh, Avanguardia Nazionale. Then you've got the, the, the center, um, the centrist, uh, you know, which would be like the, the, the bourgeois parties, like the, uh, the Movimento Sociale Italiano. Um, that would be the, you know, the, what it was contemptuously referred to as the double-breasted suit faction by the, by the more radical elements. Uh, and they were people who were basically uh, promoting, uh, you know, were, were influenced and inspired by historic fascism, but were also, also trying to establish a, a kind of niche within the, uh, within the parliamentary democratic system. And then you had the left wing of the fascist movement in Italy, which was made up of the of people who, who, who looked to fascism of the first hour, the, the, the fascism of the original program uh, of 1919 or, or uh, Denunzio's uh, uh, Charter of Carnaro as, uh, as an ideological inspiration. And some also looked to the RSI uh, because, you know, at least from a, from a rhetorical point of view, the RSI uh, was aimed to get back to the socialist and left elements of fascism. So uh, there were the elements uh, within the fascist movement in Italy, uh, like, led by people like Ernesto Massi, who really promoted a kind of left, uh, the kind of original left fascism. So it's really this kind of convoluted uh, milieu, and um, the it was really the right elements, the you know the 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 uh, the the, the if you want to call it that, the the the, 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 the Nazified Avalons or the uh, you know, in, in Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale, that really were the, were the, uh, they formed the, the, the kind of clandestine paramilitary groups that were primarily responsible for carrying out uh, um, acts of terrorism uh, that, that, are, that are associated with the strategy of tension. Um, um, but then moving forward, if you, uh, there was a big, and here we get to the whole question of national revolutionary, you're asking about national revolutionary. National revolutionary movement uh, that arose like in the, the very end of the 60s and into the early 70s was really just the, the latest iteration of a kind of left fascist uh, uh, position. And, um, uh, but before we get to that, we have to sort of understand what, that what happened within the fascist milieu as a result of the events of 1968 in uh, Paris and also the student protest movements and so forth and so on. So, you know, prior to the, the events of 68 and the rise of the new student, student movement, most of the, most of the, uh, the small neo-fascist groups in the European countries were kind of nostalgic. They, they looked to, to earlier periods uh, uh, for inspiration. Uh, they were either neo-Nazis or in some cases neo-fascist in the sense of neo-fascist, the capital F, or looking to uh, uh, earlier uh, fascist movements in France or, or whatever. And... Uh, However, uh, and therefore, and they tended to be socially conservative, uh, um, and and they, uh, uh, but there was a huge uh, shock when uh, when the '68 happened, and uh, and the and the rise of the, the student movement and the counterculture and everything like that. That was a that was a real break, uh, and a lot of elements uh, like minoritarian elements, but 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 significant minoritarian elements within the fascist movements were inspired by the student protests and by the countercultures. And then they actually began to formulate new kinds of uh, left-leaning ideologies, uh, some, some of which are, are still recognizably fascist, some of which are less recognizably fascist. And so when we're talking about 
national revolutionary groups, uh, um, uh, we're really talking about um, uh, groups that emerged like at the, at the very end of the 60s, uh, um, although they didn't call themselves that like in Italy so much, but in, in, let's talk about France and Germany first. So in France, there was a number of these so-called national revolutionary groups. For example, the, uh, the first one was called Organisation du Peuple, uh, the, 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 the People's Liberation, uh, or People's Struggle Organization, I should say. Um, and then the, there was groups like the group uh, Nationaliste Revolutionnaire de Base. There was the Mouvement Nationaliste Revolutionnaire, that's uh, Mali Rakis's group, and then that, that evolved into Troisième Voie. And then there was the groups by linked to Christian Boucher, uh, Nouvelle Résistance, and uh, the Unité Radicale, and so forth. Uh, and then at the same time in Germany, you had you had groups like the um, uh, the, the National Revolutionaire Aufbau Organisation, the Solidaristische Volksbewegung, and so forth. And so on. I'm not, not going to get into all the details, but the point is, what were these? What were the the the, the views of these groups? What were the basic ideology? It was a left fascist ideology. Uh, first of all, they promoted a kind of uh, you know the 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 the, the, the Nation Europe, nation uh, the United Europe. Uh, the United Europe is a third force uh, between the two superpower blocs. Uh, they, they, they advocated a kind of European socialism, uh, you know, not of a Marxist kind, you know, uh, obviously they, 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 they were called themselves solidarists, which means that they, were, they, they promoted alliances between a, a united Europe and third world liberation movements um, and so forth. So, um, so this is the, you know, the, the, and, and a kind of third way and more generally, a kind of third way between between uh, uh, capitalism and communism, and and what the German uh, groups called the Befreiungsnationalismus, the liberation nationalism. So that's really what we're talking about with the national revolutionary groups. Uh, and then the question becomes: Well, what is how is that related to the earlier earlier movements like Jeune Europe, uh, the Tiriart, and and the uh, and Nazi Maoism and so forth and so on. So I can try to explain that a little bit if you want me to continue. Uh, I mean, uh, definitely, definitely, I do. I I just uh, uh, dug up this quote that I really think uh, kind of uh, backs up what you're saying um, by uh, Adinolfi, the yes. founder of uh, Terza Posizione, right. um, where he says in 1968, and this is from uh, Anna Cento Bull's book, um, Italian Neo-Fascism, Right. Um, that's where I'm citing this from. But uh, okay. he says in 1968, I was 14 and was fascinated by the students revolt. However, I was horrified by Marxist language and by the Soviet solution. Hence, I tried to find an innovative position, revolutionary yet anti-Marxist. So, I mean, you know, it's exactly that pretty much it sums it up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and in fact, um, um, you know, uh, as it happens, I, I know Aldi Nofi because I've interviewed him. And I've, I have his, all of his books and everything. And of course, I, I have collections of Terza Posizione materials and so, so on. But, but yeah, he's an example of, he's one of the, the key figures in Italy who was responsible for, for, for creating this kind of new left fascist milieu and, a, and even with some sympathy for the counterculture. Uh, and then there was other, also other important people like Ugo Codensi. Um, uh, and these are the people who, who really ended up, I mean, some of these people like were, like Budensi were the people who created the, the, uh, the group Organizzazione Lotta di Popolo, which actually predated the French version, the People's Struggle Organization. Um, and then uh, 
uh, they moved on and created, like, like for example, the case of uh, Adinolfi, of course, was one of the founders of Terza Posizione. And, um, uh, and, and so there you, you have that. Uh, but I, the, another thing I want to talk about, uh, uh, and the, by the way, the relationship between these groups and Avila is pretty much not, it's very, very limited. In fact, you can actually say that to the extent that these left fascist currents became more prominent, as they did in the 70s and into the late 70s, there was actually a diminution of the influence of Avila. Now, now some people tried to tried to um, uh, sort of combine elements of Avila um, uh, with with uh, various uh, left fascist positions and also sympathy for Maoism, and that's where you have the uh, you know the the Nazi Maoist phenomenon and Claudio Muti and people like that um, who tried to somehow synthesize elements from all these different kinds of doctrines, you know, kind of aristocratic uh, elitism from, uh, from, uh, from Avila combined with the kind of left fascist position, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 and then also, uh, you know, expressing s- sympathy for third world rev- liberation movements, like, you know, kind of like, you, you know, uh, even using like, uh, 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 graphics from Che Guevara and, and, and expressing sympathy for like the, uh, uh, the, the, the cultural revolution in China and things like that, you know, so, 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 so Nazi Maoism is, is yet another variant of these, of this kind of, it's another type of ideological evolution, I would say that that's really hard to categorize. And, uh, uh, and so that this is, this is part of the problem that we're dealing with is that, that, that when you're talking about these milieus, you're really talking about very, uh, fairly complex intellectual ideas and attempts to, to combine and synthesize um, various kinds of, of ideas that, that, are, that really are, are actually kind of hard to, to, <laughs> to synthesize. And so you end up with these, all these weird uh, permutations that, 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 you know, that fall totally outside the conventional left, left and right spectrum. And this is something that, I, that really needs to be emphasized here. You know, this whole conventional left and right spectrum, you know, is, is is, is overly simplistic. It is not applicable in, in, in many of the most interesting political and cultural phenomena, um, which, uh, which, 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 which don't really fit neatly into either the left or the right. And, and people really need to understand that. It's, uh, you know, and, and especially with the rise of, a right, of the right, of different kinds of right-wing countercultures that you've had really beginning in the 70s as well. Uh, you know, starting, I mean, a good example would be the, the Hobbit camps in Italy and so forth and so on in the beginning, you know, Again, people listening to rock and roll and, and playing kinds of rock and roll and and uh, you know develop, you know promoting poetry and literature and and other kinds of uh, uh, countercultural community, community activities and so forth. So and there was a, there were elements on the right that were doing that a little bit later than elements on the left, but none, nonetheless uh, they were doing it as well. And again, there were there were kind of weird things borrowed from from these milieus. And then you have the other phenomena when you're talking about clandestine. Groups are, are borrowing best practices from each other. So, so clandestine left and right wing groups would sometimes borrow like operational methods from each other that seem to be the most effective and everything. So, there's a lot of interesting, um, uh, you know, I don't know what you would call it, reciprocal borrowing and influencing between between the radical left and the radical right. And, and when you think about Nazi Maoists, I mean, you know, at least at least ostensibly, the goal the goal of the Nazi Maoists was really to to break down. The division between the left and the right, and to actually 
have the have the radical left and radical right forming a united front against the system, and you know, and that's that's most uh, uh, in terms of ideological treatises and statements. That's most most uh, 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 illustrated in in uh, in Franco Freire's uh, booklet, uh, "La disintegrazione del sistema," the disintegration of the system where he advocates an alliance between left and right wing revolutionaries against the system. Now, in his case, it might've been part of some kind of covert provocation, but this is, a, this is another thing that gets complicated because when you're talking to some, a lot of people on, on the left, on the, on the, you know, on the, the anarchist milieu or in the, in, the, in the sectarian communist milieu, when they think about these, these uh, groups on the right that are, that are combining elements to the left and right, they think, oh, it's some kind of like, it's not really genuine. They're just like, they're just like this, this just, evil fascists who are like trying to conceal their real agenda, or it's just part of like an infiltration operation. They're basically just trying to confuse the left and, and, and use this as a way to, to kind of engage in some kind of sinister entryism strategy on, on the left. Now, there are, there are cases where that's true, but by and large, when we're talking about these kind of, uh, these kind of uh, phenomena, it really isn't true. Okay? What we're really talking about is the ideological evolution of extremist milieus, uh, just as you find on the left, you find ideological evolution of, of left-wing extremist milieus in the post-war uh, period as well, and they take a lot of weird forms. I mean, like uh, um, so. Um, so I think people should should just uh, you know you have to be able to distinguish between genuine processes of intellectual and ideological evolution that are, that are adapting to new circumstances or influenced by external things that are going on in society. And like, you know, some kind of like, uh, um, you know, uh, secret cabal of people who are, who are engaged in some kind of infiltration operation, you know. Definitely, definitely. Uh, when you were talking about um, uh, this kind of like countercultural element, I was reminded of uh, Fiorovanti's uh, uh, bragging that he actually worked with the radical party um, and that kind of thing, you know, I mean, here's a guy who admits to having murdered 10 people, uh, having gotten rid of even, you know, fascists in the MSI right. who, who we really hated, right? Because this is right. like the later Well, part. yeah, but, you know, this is another thing that's, imp this is another complicated thing, though. I mean, like, when you think about the, the, the groups, the, the, you know, the, 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 the radical right uh, groups, including the groups that engaged in and violence and terrorism, like in the 70s, that, that broke away from the earlier model provided by Ordinem Volvo and uh, Avanguardia Nazionale, which were basically collaborating with and manipulated by factions of the Secret Service, right? So, in, re in reaction against that, you had new the formation of new groups of new, you know, uh, the paramilitary groups on the radical right, you know, which would include, of course. Uh, elements of terza posizione, and, and, and then you would have you have the, this another group, uh, Costruiamo Lazione. Let's let's build action. Let's take action, and then you end up with the Nuclei Nuclei Armati Revoluzionari, which is of course the group Fioravanti was associated with. And so these were what they call armed spontaneism groups, groups that were they were they were trying to carry out revolutionary violence. It wasn't manipulated by the bourgeois establishment or the bourgeois power structure or the secret services or the NATO linked groups or, or the Atlanticist forces and so forth and so on. Um, now those groups, those, 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 those efforts generally failed because precisely because these groups no longer had the protection 
of powerful elements in society, it was much easier for the security forces to crack down on them, and so on, which, which happened pretty quickly, actually. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, yeah, but I think that the, the countercultural aspects are, are very important. I mean, you, um, you know, it, it became very, very prominent. And, and by the way, this is also true of the National Revolutionary Milieu, that, that they became increasingly inspired by elements of the counterculture. And some of the key elements within, the, within those National Revolutionary Milieus, uh, you know, really were, became big advocates of, like, of radical uh, uh, of underground rock music and, and extreme kinds of uh, esoteric uh, uh, countercultural movements and things like that, and grew their hair out and they, you know, you really, they're really indistinguishable in terms of their appearance from, from people on the left and then people from left-wing countercultures. And that's uh, something that, uh, you know, nowadays you really can hardly tell the difference. I mean, um, you know, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a new book on the, uh, um, um, on the, uh, on the, the under underground right-wing rock and roll, uh, you know, from like the, uh, from like 1978 up, up you know, maybe as far as the presence as I present as I can bring it, you know, I guess you could say this would be my magnum opus in the sense that I'm combining my uh, my my lifelong scholarly interests in extremism with my uh, uh, lifelong countercultural lifestyle and love of rock and roll into into a, into a single book and and uh, you know so nowadays you you know you you you, you, you it's very difficult to to distinguish between between uh, countercultural people from the, on the radical left and, uh, and on, the, on the right, unless they're wearing certain kind of badges and things which, are, which give clear indications of their, of their political orientation. So, 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 you know, this is all, uh, there's, a, there's really been, a, I mean, you think, think of what's going on from like from the late, from the mid seventies to the present with, with the development of, counter, of various countercultural right currents and compare that to the situation like in the 1950s when, when basically the, the, the most of the, the, the members of these small neo-Nazi and neo-fascist groups were, were totally nostalgic, you know, totally nostalgic and, and, and really, uh, you know, very, very conservative, socially speaking, you know, uh, so there's been a really been a radical transformation of the, uh, of the right, uh, you know, um, uh, in, in uh, recent decades and really, uh, you know, to some extent of the left also in various, in various ways, but um, uh, but, but you know, so when you're looking at these things, you can't be you can't be thinking of a model like from the 1930s anymore, or a model from the uh, even from the 1950s. You know, it's, it's things have really changed a lot. For sure, for sure. I, I think especially the 1950s. I mean, you could make an argument, say, you know, in the 1920s that fascism was especially countercultural. In yes, the, you in can. The sense of, yeah, in the sense of like futurism and oh, yeah. avant-garde stuff. But in the Absolutely 1950s, right. yeah. you know, yeah. they, they had lost almost all of that. Um, yeah, well, they, I, in fact, I would argue, I, I would actually argue that, uh, that, you know, when you think about uh, certain kinds of uh, things like industrial music or, uh, or um, you know, even, even like this kind of, uh, you know, what's that poetry called where people are just, you know, like slam poetry or whatever, or like things like Mark Pauline was doing, like in the early punk scene in San Francisco, blowing up machinery and creating these weird devices, machine devices, and then blowing them up and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of that stuff really, you know, and even when you think about accelerationism, the different accelerationist doctrines that are, that are, that have been developed on the left and the right, uh, you know, uh, now and, and, and really for some time, 
a lot of that really, uh, some of that goes back to futurism and things like that, and some of the, the fascist avant-garde stuff in the 20s. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, also, the, also the same thing's true with radical, eco-radicals. You know, I have to laugh sometimes when I hear radical leftists, especially eco-radicals, leftist eco-radicals, complain about, like, you know, fascist, uh, you know, being latecomers to, 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 to ecology and, you know, or, or just somehow trying to infiltrate or confuse people. The fact is that the fascists were eco-radicals long before the communists were. I mean, the communists were at a time when most communists were, 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 were promoting, you know, industrial, industrialization and mass, mass production. They, you know, the communists in the, late, in the 19th century were advocating, you know, uh, rapid industrialization. They, they had virtually no concern for, uh, for 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 uh, uh, you know environmental issues and really it was it was like youth movements including the Bonderfogel movement and so forth and so on like that that really had a much more a, a much more concern with environmental issues and, e and ecology than than, than than any left wing movements at the time except for maybe some kind of small groups of Bohemians or something like that so so you know one shouldn't really think of it. Uh, uh, you know, in, in such simple-minded terms, you know, that, that the left has always been ecological and the right's been opposed to ecology. I mean, that's just not true. No, they're kind of like thematic uh, sites of contestation. Um, so, you know, you were talking about the 1950s and I want to get back there um, because, you know, one of the fascinating things about you know, what people call neo-fascism or, or fascism after post-war fascism in Italy is, is how incredibly broken Mussolini leaves the country. I mean, he, he himself said that he had ruined Italy shortly before his death. Um, I mean, the dire humiliation of it all. Yeah. Um, and then you get these people like Pino Rauti, you know, uh, who right. want to take up the banner. It's like, you know, give it a rest. But um you know, there's all this stuff that's built up around the Gladio network. So I want to touch on that because okay, a lot of people who are involved in the Gladio networks uh, in that sort of post-war period actually came from the partisan side. That's right? correct. The, the white partisans who were fighting against sort of Yugoslav partisans and also, you know, against Mussolini. Uh, some of them said that they would have rather fought for Hitler if he didn't side with Mussolini um, because they were very extreme reactionaries. And I think some of them might have been monarchists even. Um, yeah, well, well that, that's right. I mean, as you're right. So let's when we're talking about the composition of the Gladio networks, I mean, there, there's like this very simplistic view. Uh, just promoted by, cons by conspiracy theory types that, you know, that, uh, that, you know, that, that, that evil people from the CIA and NATO were, were recruiting fascists to carry out, uh, uh, you know, uh, acts of terrorism and stuff like that. That's really not the, the, the case at all. I mean, the reality was rather different. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've got to go back to that that uh, you know the 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 the, 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 the collapse of the alliance between the Soviets and the Western Allies and the and the, the outbreak of the Cold War and the and the the fact that the, the that the Soviets controlled Eastern Europe with all the satrapies and so forth and so on and the, and they had much they had mil conventional military superiority over over the Western powers and and there were there were genuine fears that that the Soviets were would invade Western Europe and conquer Western Europe and. Uh, and uh, you know, which is why ultimately the U.S. decided, well, we have to have a nuclear umbrella to protect Europeans if, if it should come to that. 
Um, but in the meantime, the idea was, well, okay, having learned something from the resistance against the Nazis in World War II, that it's very difficult to build up uh, resistance networks behind enemy lines in occupied territory from scratch. The idea was, well, let's let's set up some some uh, uh, um, some stay behind networks. You know, some cadres of partisans, of potential partisans, uh, providing them with uh, you know communications equipment and, and arms caches and so forth and so on. And so that in the event of a Soviet military invasion, or in the case of Italy, in the event of a communist the takeover by the PGE, you know, uh, there would be there would be partisan uh, units that could be uh, nodes nodes exist would already exist so you could mobile you could organize a partisan resistance, and so that was really the whole purpose of the state behind networks as the as the name as the name implies and and in most cases what you said is correct I mean most of the cases the people who were recruited into these networks which had different names and different Uh-oh. Are you still there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, in most cases, the people they recruited were not fascists or, or, or people from the radical right. In most cases, they were, they were conservatives, uh, monarchists, like you said, or uh, you know, uh, Catholic, Catholics or, 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 or people who have been members of white partisan organizations as opposed to communist partisan organizations during World War II, some of whom therefore already had some, some military experience and organizing uh, clandestine resistance networks and so forth and so on. So the idea that, you know, that, that all the people recruited into these networks were, were, were like, uh, you know, fascist or revolutionary radical rightist is just not true. Now, it is true that in some particular context that the radical rightists were among those who were recruited. And, um, uh, you know, you, you see that in the case of uh, the group in Germany, the Bund Deutsche Jugend and, and so forth and so on. You, you see that uh, uh, especially uh, in the case of, um, of Turkey, uh, where you had uh, the, uh, the the neo-fascist party, the, the Milietic Hareket Partisi, the Nationalist Action Party, and its and its paramilitary squads, the Grey Wolves, um, they were recruited into the uh, the Gladio network uh, um, uh, in uh, Turkey, uh, uh, the counter guerrilla, uh, the counter guerrilla organization, and so forth and so on, and, and were involved in carrying out dirty uh, operations against. Uh, Kurdish separatists and against the left and so forth and so on. And then you had, you know, you had some some elements in Italy and some elements in various other countries that, that you could you could legitimately characterize as as the radical right. But in most cases, the Gladio networks were not involved in um, in uh, domestic subversion or domestic terrorism. I mean, that's the other thing. So, uh, like for example, the book by Danielle Ganser, you know, who you know really makes it seem like you know this was like this. This sinister coordinated thing, and and that um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, that was that's really a, a like a, a very great oversimplification of the actual situation. So, right, it 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 seems like uh, the you know people often you know people use Gladio networks as shorthand to talk about the different stay behind networks throughout Europe uh, that were right. set up, um, and there was some you know conflict uh, with regard to Yugoslavia, um, you know, there, that sort of thing. Um, but I think like, you know, there's a tendency to say that, say, like you were saying, uh, um, 
Ordine Nuovo was actually part of Gladio. And I think there's overlap between different sectors, but I, that's, that's kind of a gross distortion. It is a know? gross distortion. It's a totally gross distortion. I mean, Ordine Nuovo is a group that is linked. I mean, it had a separate covert elite element that was really involved. It was just like a compartmentalized uh, element within Ordine Nuovo. That was really responsible for, uh, for 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 planning and carrying out terrorist operations and supporting various other kinds of anti-democratic operations, and and that group was linked, uh, you know, to factions of the Italian military intelligence service, uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, to uh, various military networks, official military networks, and and also various quasi-official military networks, uh, like there were there was like unofficial, if you want to call it, and. Um, you know, I I talk about that at some length in my in my in my uh, book in the uh, the addendum to uh, uh, in the addendum uh, uh, to the chapter on postwar neo-fascist internationals uh, part two. You know, I talk about just how complex uh, the different parallel apparatuses and parallel networks were. And how they were often, sometimes they overlapped, sometimes they were actually working at cross purposes. I mean, like Avanguardia Nazionale was, was linked to the, to the uh, Ufficio Affari Riservati of the, of the Interior Ministry, primarily, and then later, to some extent, to the Military Intelligence Service. But Ordine Nuovo was primarily linked to the Military Intelligence Service and various uh, secret uh, networks within the military and so, so on. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I would say that uh, that. Ordinary and Wolvo had had very limited. If, I, I don't even know if they have any any overlap with Claudio. To be honest with, uh, I mean, there might have been a few, a couple of individuals here and there who might have been members of both, but uh, that's about it. I mean, and that's I think the important point to, rec to realize here is that the overemphasis on Gladio, certainly in Italy and probably also in various other countries, the overemphasis on the importance of Gladio has actually blinded people to a much more complex system of, over of overlapping covert networks that were actually much more dangerous. Can you talk a little bit about the Aloya de Lorenzo split? It, during the uh, 19, mid-1960s, there, there was a big split within the, uh, within, um, the Italian military between uh, uh, General de Lorenzo and another and a guy named General Aloya. And, uh, and in fact, Aloya was the person who was who was really promoting like the development of like uh, uh, counter excuse me, counter guerrilla and, and counterinsurgency and counter terrorist uh, networks to fight the, to fight communist subversion, more so than General De Lorenzo. And so, in fact, Ordine Nuovo, in particular Pino Rauti, uh, became allies of General Aloya, who was actually De Lorenzo's uh, rival in this uh, in this inter internecine struggle within the military. And um, in fact, they actually wrote a book. Uh, Rauti was a co-author of a book, the uh, Mani Rossi sulle Forze Armate, the Red Hands Over the Armed Forces, where they accused Del Renzo and other elements within the Italian military of being, of being too closely tied to, uh, to, to the PCE and the communists. Yeah, they accused him of being a yeah. communist. Yeah. That part is great. And if I'm not mistaken, it, there, uh, the, the other co-author there was Giannettini, who was actually right. an informant. 
That's right. Giannatini was uh, was uh, was an informant uh, for military for Italian military intelligence. He was an I would say he's more than an informant. He was an operative of of, uh, uh, of Italian military intelligence. Absolutely. One of the things that I would say about all that is that there, and this is something that I delineate in my book, is that really there's three different groups that are sort of manipulating the strategy of tension. You know, on the one hand, you've got these high-ranking people within the system, by by which I'm referring to primarily to, not exclusively to Andreotti. Um, uh, Andreotti is trying to make use of these uh, these uh, coup plots and, and even right-wing terrorist movements in order to strengthen the position of, 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 of himself and other uh, and his factions in control of the, of the government. Then you have the presidentialists who want to replace the existing parliamentary system uh, with a more muscular uh, system with a stronger executive branch. Um, and those are people who I, I think, you know, I, I think I think the U.S. would have supported a presidentialist system if the alternative was a communist takeover. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, yeah. And then the third group, of course, is revolutionary fascists who had their own agenda, ultimately want to overthrow bourgeois democracy and, and create like some kind of revolutionary regime. Um, and they, they were sort of, manip- obviously, the, even though they were utilized and covered and protected and colluded in various ways with the other elements, these other factions, and they were actually, uh, I mean, there, there was really no chance that, that, they, that they could have achieved their objective. And, and I think, you know, again, you have to really understand the Cold War context here, because you, I don't think you would have had alliances between those groups without, the, without, a, without the, the, these, these fears of communism uh, and communist influence and communist takeovers. I think that's what you, you know, that's that's what that's what created a situation where you where you had fascist radicals aligned with with the pro-Atlantic elements in the U.S. and NATO and stuff like that in certain respects to, because the because the threat of communism was, was considered so severe that that you know that was the only alternative. Um, but Certainly. but and I think that's the real. So I think I think that product that alliance, quote unquote, if you want to call it that, is a product of mutual manipulation. I would say, but that alliance uh-huh. was really a. A result of a, of a Cold War context, and wouldn't have probably occurred um, uh, in lieu of that context. Well, yeah, I mean, you've also got, jeez, um, uh, uh, Vinci Guerra, who who has kind of turned against the whole uh, Ordine Nuovo group, uh, or had done that um, after the yeah, he did that massacre lot. because yeah, he because did that he accused them. He, of, he was one of the, the first of the, of, of the radical fascists to really uh, to really recognize the extent to which uh, Ordine Nuovo was uh, was working in conjunction, sometimes knowingly, sometimes not knowingly, with uh, with the uh, with NATO or or you know what he what he thought of as the CIA or the, you know because you know oftentimes people in foreign countries attribute everything to the CIA you know as if the CIA has is like this you know has the power to secretly run the world and all this kind of stuff, which is complete nonsense. I mean, anybody who actually knows about the history of the CIA knows, and all these intelligence agencies, and this is one of the problems with conspiracy theories, <laughs> you know, they ascribe far too much competence and power to people. You know, you're, you're dealing with people who are clueless half the time as human beings that make mistakes, who don't understand what's really going on, who fuck up, you know, so the idea that anybody has the kind of ability to secretly control all these, all these complicated forces in the world, I mean, it's just not, it cannot be true. 
you know, and so uh, uh, so this is the fundamental flaw of conspiracy, conspiracy theorists, you know, ascribing far too much omniscience and omnipotence to uh, to uh, whatever small cabal that they've identified as supposedly running the world, you know. <laughs> so, but um, but Vinci Guerra was the first to realize the extent to which uh, the, the the so-called revolutionary project of Ordine Nuovo was was thoroughly corrupted and compromised by by its uh, interactions and alliances with uh, with uh, these uh, really elements of the establishment, I guess you would say, and uh, and that's why he carried out the Petiano bombing as, as a protest against that. Uh, you know where he where, where, he, where he detonated a car car bomb, killed two carabinieri, and so forth and so on, and then he ended up in life in prison and so forth. And, and so then his first book, where you know he wrote it, he wrote about it, he really denounced Ordine Nuovo. I mean, he has the funny line in there that the double eagle of the of Ordine Nuovo is looking increasingly like the American eagle, <laughs> and stuff like that. You know? And then, uh, uh, but the funny thing, the weird thing about Vinci Guerra was that he didn't. In that, in, that, in that first book in particular, he didn't accuse Avanguardia Nazionale of being complicit with these forces. And in fact, I would argue that Avanguardia Nazionale was even more complicit with state security forces than Ordine Nuovo, and not only in Italy, but in Spain and Latin America and all, you know, all over the damn place. So, uh, so he seemed to have a bit of a blind spot with respect to recognizing the extent to which Avanguardia Nazionale and Delechiai were actually uh, uh, colluding. And and I would say, including even more knowingly in some respects than than Ordine and Lobo. So uh, later on, though, he, he wrote subsequent books where he then began to he he then began to uh, to denounce uh, Avanguardia Nazionale as well. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. We've been talking for quite a while now, um, but uh, I have my. We've been talking a lot about the sort of we talked about the strategismo kind of uh, element, and and er, before then we talked about the national revolutionaries and their more like armed spontaneity kind of thing. Right. But you you brought something out that I thought was pretty important that uh, I wanted to um, kind of. Uh, mull over, which is about uh, how there was a sort of a reciprocal uh, relationship in a sense, and um, uh, not in that they loved each other at all. I mean, they were killing each other, but um, but in the statements that they were making. And so I think, you know, one obviously crucial element of the years of lead really kind of touches off in the mid 70s with the murders that the left starts to perpetrate. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Okay. Know, All right. Well, know. let me just say, first of all, that when we're talking about the history of terrorism in Italy, we have to really divide it into two, two phases. The, the phase from, let's say, 1968 to 1974, dominated by right-wing terrorism. The phase from 1975 into the 80s, dominated by left-wing terrorism. Um, so that's the, the, I mean, I mean, from a statistical point of view, that's just the fact. Um, and I would say that actually it was very rare that elements of the, of the revolutionary right and the revolutionary left would actually kill each other. Um, uh, I mean, there was, there was more tit for tat, like you were mentioning tit for tat in your questions to me. There was more, much more tit for tat in terms of, in terms of political street violence, where, where fascists and communists would fight each other on the street or something like that. But in terms of the underground organizations, the clandestine organizations rarely targeted each other, I would say, which is, and then of course, there's another interesting similarity, which is that they both, they both rely heavily on anti-system rhetoric. You know, the, 
the, uh, the, 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 the red brigades and Lotha Continua and all those groups were, you know, I mean, they, they were targeting what they called the, the, the Stato Imperialista Multinazionale or the, the imperialist state of the multinationals, you know, you know that, that was their code word for the system. And of course, yep. the, 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 the revolutionary right groups were also targeting the system. And there was certainly overlap in the rhetoric, you know, anti, anti-bourgeois, anti-capitalist, uh, anti-democratic, all that kind of, anti-bourgeois democracy, certainly. So they, they had a lot of overlap in terms of the rhetoric. Uh, and I think, you know, in terms of, they, they probably borrowed a little bit from each other in terms of like, you know, clandestine organizational structures and cadre stuff. And, you know, I mean, uh, which, which, which underground movements tend, typically tend to do. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, then you have, of course, the question of, you know, there's also a big, you know, we, we know that elements of the radical right were manipulated by, by the security services. Um, and and, and, and uh, sometimes, sometimes uh, there was some collusion, but, some, but a lot of times it was, on, uh, it was, it was secret manipulation. We also, uh, there's a lot of allegations that, that the different elements within the uh, different columns of the Red Brigade were really being manipulated by, by, the, uh, by the secret services as well. And particularly, particularly Mario Moretti's uh, column and the Rome column, the one that was involved in the kidnapping of Aldo Moro, the murder of Aldo Moro. Uh, you know, there's, there's been a lot of books that have, that have identified very uh, suspicious and strange coincidences uh, having to do with the Moro assassination and and links between the, the, that particular faction of the Red Brigades and and the Italian Secret Services. And then there's been a subsequent rash of books that have tried to poo-poo all that and everything like that. And you know, I, I I don't I don't I don't think you should exaggerate. I mean, I think there are some strange connections that probably deserve to be uh, would be nice to unearth. But I but I I wouldn't want to wouldn't want to make it seem as though it was it was as simple as that the that the Moretti group was secretly controlled by 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 SID or something like by the Italian military intelligence service. I, I mean that would be a, a very simple simple-minded way to view it. I think. Right. I mean, the a lot of those allegations sort of circle around Andreotti. Um, a lot of it because people are, I think, maybe rightfully, I think probably rightfully bitter that he didn't do that much to free Moro. Yeah, rightfully so. I mean, look, the, the fact of the matter is that um, elements of the Socialist Party and the Christian Democrats also were, were happy that Morrow was kidnapped and killed. And it served their interest, too, because Morrow was trying to engineer the historic compromise and bring the communists into, the, into some kind of a coalition government uh, with the, with the uh, Christian Democrats and so forth and so on. And so there are elements within the Christian Democrats, also elements within the Socialist Party, who were totally opposed to bringing the communists into the ruling government coalition. And those people were, I'm sure, quite happy that uh, the, the, the leading Christian democratic figure who was promoting this thing had been uh, targeted, uh, kidnapped and murdered by, uh, by and, and I, there's no doubt that, that the, the police and the security services didn't do nearly as much as they could have to try to rescue more. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think, that had, I think that's because elements of the establishment we're perfectly happy if uh, if the red brigades killed him. And I mean, you know, people uh, paint Aldo Moro like he's a saint, and you know, this sort of like uh, pure politician in a corrupt country. But I, it, Moro himself said, you know, 
there would never be anybody in the Christian Democrat party that would go to jail for any kind of, you know, um, coup plots or, or that sort of thing. You know, he was, he stood directly behind his, you know, uh, Christian Democrat boys in the mid seventies. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, look, Uh, the establishment protects itself, you know, in every political system, you know, and, and in the oligarchic systems we have in, 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 uh, in so-called democratic states, including our own country at the present time, we've got an oligarchic system, bipartisan system that, uh, that promotes its own interests at the expense of the, of, the, of the huge majority of American citizens. That's just the way it is. And, um, you know, it's the way it is in every country, unfortunately. So, so you can certainly sympathize. I mean, anybody should be able to, to sympathize with, I guess you could say, anti-establishment and anti-system impulses. The problem is that a lot of the people who are adopting anti-establishment perspectives are promoting even worse ideas. You know, so <laughs> I mean, if you're promoting communism or fascism, then uh, you know uh, you, you, that would be worse than than what we've got. So, as far as I'm concerned, you know, so uh, so that's the problem. Extremists may may have legitimate criticisms of the of the establishment. The establishment they often do have legitimate criticisms of certain features of the establishment and certain behaviors of the establishment, but their own so-called solutions are not solutions at all, but they're actually worse. It would be a situation where the cure would be worse than the disease. Than the, than the disease. And I think that's that's part of why you know the, this whole period in Italian history is really marked by utter failure. Uh, is that you you have this sort of like these pockets of the establishment sort of working in in covert ways with forces that truly hate them. Uh, and they hate those forces that they're working with. And then That's at, right. the, at the same time, you've got all this blackmail going on with, you know, of course, the uh, propaganda due situation. But sure. again, when you're talking about the conspiracy theorists, it's not like, you know, Jelly in, in uh, uh, P2 was, you know, controlling everybody. I mean, just no. look at what look at what happened to him. You know? right. I mean, if he was some like grand, you know, uh, puppet master who who control. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't have his hands in 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 what was going on at the time. Of course he did, but he went down and he went down really hard. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing about P. Dewey, of course, it was linked. It was linked. It was it was a, it was a very powerful influence group. It was engaged in all kinds of licit and illicit activities. Um, and it had, but it also had a lot of enemies, and there were, and there were also factions within P two that were, that were, uh, you know, uh, uh, that did not work together harmoniously. So, That's so right. once Michelli again, and, and Maletti, the generals. Yeah, I mean, so once again, you 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 have a, you know, in the real world, uh, you can't avoid uh, personal conflicts, factionalism, greed, you know, uh, power hungry maneuvering. I mean, even even groups that seem to be united in their goals, you're going to have those kinds of tendencies operating within them, and uh, which again just adds to the to the complexity of the real world. And that's that's why all these conspiracy theories, which are really based on very simple-minded notions of how things actually work, are, are wrong, are false, because because they 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 eliminate all the all the 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 
the, the real world complexities uh, in order to present a, a, you know, a very simplistic explanatory paradigm, uh, which is not, not accurate. I, I'm, I'm confused. Are you saying that Operation Gladio didn't false flag stage chemical attacks in Syria? <laughs> yeah, and I'm saying that like uh, I'm saying that 9/11 wasn't an inside job. You know? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to sit with that for a while. But uh, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, okay. I really appreciate you elucidating all of this uh, uh, stuff. Is very complex issues, and you have a very nuanced brain to sort of explain it for everybody and articulate the different. You know. Yeah, well, I hope I didn't get too much in the weeds. I mean, I was trying to, I mean, I was trying to somehow reflect how complex the situation was without totally confusing your listeners. Maybe I didn't succeed. So uh, it's, it, it's, you can't, it, it's all about the weeds. This is a giant, you know, pile of weeds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, like pretty much everything else in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's all sort of transversal weediness. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, anyway, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk about these subjects because, uh, of course, they're intrinsically interesting, and um, they do have some historical importance, and um, you know they they also have some uh, relevance by analogy to even things that are going on at the present time. So, um, so uh, you know, yeah. So most definitely. Um, all right, Jeff. Free bail um, from the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, retired and uh, working on this new book. When do you think yeah. that's going to be out? Well, I just I just co-authored another book that, that's coming out uh, uh, called "Fighting the Last War," which is a very severe criticism of the literature on the radical right, and um, and uh, so that's that's something that I've been working on in the last few months. But but now I've already written half of my book on underground right-wing rock and roll you'll use. And, I'm, and so after a hiatus, I'm going to spend a few, a few weeks blobbing out and doing a whole lot of nothing. Um, like what I did just the other day, I read this fantastic, really fascinating book by a guy named Tom O'Neill called Chaos about the Manson murders, and uh, which I, I strongly recommend everybody read. It's just fascinating. But anyway, so now I'm just reading weird stuff that I'm interested in reading for a few weeks and before I get back to, to that other book which will probably take me another year or so to complete. And I was hoping to be able to travel throughout Europe uh, uh, to interview people and collect more materials. Uh, but uh, given all the COVID restrictions and all this other stuff, I mean, who knows when that's going to be, that's going to be possible to do all that. So. True, true. So it's fighting the last war. That's yeah. The, uh, okay. In other words, what I'm arguing is that, that the threat for, I know you're not going to agree with this, but, but I'm arguing that the threat from the radical right uh, between, since 1945, from 1945 to the present has been, um, has been completely exaggerated and that uh, people are still thinking of, of, of the radical right, uh, viewing it from a 1930s paradigm when you have mass fascist movements and things like that. And, that, and then nothing like that has, nothing like that has occurred um, you know, for, uh, since 1945 and, and, and nor is it ever likely to occur. And really, the only the only time that uh, that that these small groupets on the radical right, which are normally consigned to the fringes or the margins of society, ever ever have any potential for uh, uh, having real influence, is precisely when they're collaborating with uh, elements of the establishment or with the 
so secret services and so forth and so on in various ways. So anyway. Fascinating. Um, well, I, I, I may not agree with it, but I haven't read it yet. So I look forward to checking it out. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you won't <laughs> agree with it, but, uh, but that's okay. We'll just have to agree to disagree. That's cool. That's cool. Um, All right. Well, again, thank you very much. And okay, uh, yeah, take care. Thank you.